This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 22nd, 1985. British Air Tours Flight 28M, a Boeing 737 with 137 people on board, is about to embark on a charter flight from Manchester, England to Corfu, Greece. During the takeoff roll, while accelerating through approximately 125 knots, the pilots hear a loud bang, and assuming that one of their tires has popped, they begin aborting the takeoff. The first officer applies the brakes and the plane slows down and then exits onto a taxiway. Nine seconds after hearing the bang, fire alarms begin sounding in the cockpit. The tower controller then confirms, right, there's a lot of fire, and suggests that the pilots evacuate passengers out of the right side of the plane. The pilots begin their 15-step checklist, of which evacuating passengers is the last item. A fire is now raging in the plane and smoke is filling the cabin. When all is said and done, 55 people have died in an accident where the plane never even left the ground. Why did so many people die in this accident? And what changes have been implemented to make evacuating a plane safer? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi. I, I heard a, a gasp during the intro there well, from you. That's a lot of items on a checklist it's where a- you, getting people out of the fire is surprisingly lower on the list. Well, well we're, obviously we're going to yeah. get into it, but if you think about it, you want there are certain things that have to be done before you can evacuate the passengers, like turning the engines off. Yeah. So that people don't walk in front. And, yeah, you know, you I, know, get I, injured and. I want to see the other 14. Yeah, what's, yeah. Going, what's going on here? Well, even just, it's not like, whoop, turn the engine off, right? There's steps to everything. Sure. So it's going to take a little while and we're going to get into it. No spoiler here. I think this is our longest script ever for oh Black Box Down. Oh my goodness. It's really long. Uh, <laughs> for a plane that never got off the ground. <laughs> there better be some juice in this fruit. because <laughs> There's a lot to, to break down here. Before we get into it, of course, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There's definitely some pictures I want to share about this one to help show what happened and, you know, give you a further explanation. I'll do my best here in the audio, but it doesn't hurt to check out social media. So British Air Tours 28M, this was, like I said, this was a charter flight and British Air Tours was the low cost branch of British Airways. Uh-huh. It was kind of a tour group, right? Like tour packages kind of thing, like all inclusive tours. Okay. And this was the summer, you know, they were doing a, a flight. This is, this is the 80s too, where yeah. that, I, th- I feel like that thing is more common where there'd be like right. tours and travel planner type things is before you could book things on the internet right yeah. you go to to like a travel agent and they'd be like you tell them you want to go to greece and they'd book the flight and the hotel and everything yeah. just all in one package and just kind of you know that was that's what you did and yeah. it was the summertime august so probably a lot of people going down to greece for for holiday that's cool i bet they had some good little trips everyone you fly with is also <laughs> they're going on vacation on, on going to the same place so you can make friends yeah so british air tour specifically was established in 1969 uh-huh. and became a subsidiary of British Airways in the early 70s. And then it adopted the name Caledonian Airways in 1988. This is after the accident. And then got sold to a tour operator called Inspirations in 1995 when British Airways exited the inclusive tour market. I think mm. just in general, that was changing. Like we just talked about, the yeah. internet was starting to take off. People were maybe booking directly. 1995 is still pretty early for internet stuff, but you know, maybe British Airways saw the writing on the wall and just got out of that, out of that market. Yeah. Anyway, in uh, 1999, Thomas Cook acquired Inspirations and then merged Caledonian Airways with Flying Colors to form a company called JMC Air Services, which became Thomas Cook Airlines. Now, here in the United States, we're not very familiar with Thomas Cook, but this was a huge tour operator based out of the United Kingdom, like absolutely massive. 
And Thomas Cook actually very famously ceased operations in September of 2019. Oh. I don't know if you kept up with the news when that happened. Well, not, not. British tour company news, but <laughs> well, I think this was this it was, was a bigger yeah. This was huge news worldwide because they kind of collapsed without note, without warning. Like people were out on holiday, they stranded 165,000 passengers around the world. Oh, when they went under, and other airlines from all around the world had to step in and help get these 165,000 people back to the United Kingdom. In what year? When? 2000 September 2019. So this is before before COVID. Right before COVID, yeah. Wow. So people were traveling everywhere. We could do a whole, like, it's not, this isn't the core of our podcast, but we could do like a whole supplemental episode just about the rise and fall of Thomas Cook Airlines and what a big deal this was when essentially they went out of business overnight without warning. Imagine you're out on a trip and then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah. Oh, um, I can't check into my flight. Yeah. Not, not only can you not check into your flight, that flight doesn't exist. Isn't going to fly. <laughs> like, can't check into my flight. Hmm, I'll check the, the website. Huh. Website's the not website's working. not working. Huh. I'll, I'll call. What do you mean the airline doesn't exist? <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's a big, big deal when this happened. The Thomas Cook affair. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Anyway, I just wanted to give a little bit of background as to what happened with British Air Tours. Because I wasn't, personally, I was not familiar with British Air Tours. Anyway, back to this specific accident we're talking about. The flight was captained by Peter Terrington, who was 39 years old, and First Officer Brian Love, who was 52 years old. The captain had 8,441 hours, flight hours, and the First Officer had 12,277 flight hours, of which the captain had 1,276 hours in the Boeing 737, and the First Officer had 345. So even though the First Officer was older and had more hours, he had less time in Boeing 737s than the captain did. And the aircraft was powered by two Pratt & Whitney JT-8D engines that seemed to be operating fine. Or I should say they at least powered up without incident. However, that being said, there was an entry in the technical log that had been entered on the previous day that complained that there was slow acceleration in the number one engine, which is the left-hand side. Uh-huh. And the pilots discuss it because the first officer had actually been a member of the crew on that flight when there was slow acceleration in the number one engine. But there had been no reported problems on the two flights after some remedial action had been carried out. So the captain just, you know, signed his acceptance of that log. The aircraft was cleared to line up on runway 24. And since nose wheel steering was only available through a tiller on the left side of the flight deck, the first officer assumed control after the commander had lined up the aircraft on the runway. And we've talked about this before. Sometimes on planes, you can only steer the nose wheel from one side of the plane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So in this case, the, 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 like, the nose steering wheel, you can think of it that way, was only on the captain's side. So he lined the plane up, and then you know, it was the first officer's plane to fly. And you know, they could also do a limited amount of steering through the rudder pedals as well. But really, the bulk of the steering was from that tiller wheel, or I should say the tiller. The aircraft was cleared for takeoff at 6.12 a.m. universal time, which was 7.12 a.m. local time. Okay. Early morning. Early morning flight. Go, go, go on holiday. Yeah. Get an early start on it. Look at his vacation started off with, uh-oh, with a bang. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. So the wind was reported at 250 at seven knots. So light wind, pretty close to straight down the runway, just 10 degrees off. Mm -hmm. And the first officer requested takeoff power. The commander advanced the throttles and commented that the number one engine acceleration was acceptable. The first officer agreed that it was better than on the previous day. And then the auto throttle was selected and the engines achieved required takeoff power. So they're having issues with it? The day yeah. before, number one engine had been slow to accelerate. Huh. And the first officer had been on that flight and they'd noted it. Some hmm. remedial action was done and it seemed to be better. That's why the first officer says it was better than the day before when he saw it last. Uh, and then while they're, you know, accelerating down the runway, the captain 
makes a routine call of 80 knots, which was confirmed by the first officer. And then 12 seconds later, a thump was heard. Immediately, the commander ordered stop, and he closed the throttles and selected reverse thrust on both engines. How fast were they going at that point? At that point, about 125 knots. Okay, so they were close to V1, Yeah, right? they, were getting, they were getting close to the point of no return. Yeah. But, you know, they managed to stop before they reached that point. They still had enough cool. runway ahead of them. So it's like, okay. And then that's what happens. The captain says, stop, turns the throttles off, turns the thrust reversers on, checks that the speed brakes are extended. The maximum indicated airspeed achieved was 126 knots. And they thought that either maybe a tire had burst or mm-hmm. they hit a bird. Or bird? A big bird. You never know. The bird gets ingested into the engine. Okay. It might make like a, a loud thumping sound. Or I guess even if it hits up near the cockpit. But so whatever. Like, yeah. they, they know. Hey, something that's not a good sound, not a normal sound. Yeah. So they, you know, they initiate the stop and both thrust reverser systems deployed and the right engine pressure ratio peaked briefly at 1.32 before settling at 1.25 for about five seconds, after which reverse was deselected on both engines. So they deploy the thrust reversers, then retract them when they get down to about 70 knots. Mm -hmm. However, when they did that, only the right engine reverser retracted. So it wouldn't retract? The left engine one would not retract. The, the thrust reverser deployed, but then stayed deployed. Oh. And also, the left engine EPR fell to zero. Remember, I said the right engine was at 1.25. The left engine fell to zero within two seconds of the thud and then remained at zero. Evolutions per, se- per- EPR, it's the engine pressure ratio. It's just oh. a measurement of, of fuel to air. Well, like the power mm. that it's putting out. I'll stop trying to guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it fell to zero. And I only point that out because the right engine still has power in it. If it falls to zero, it's like it's off. Yeah, but probably just the fire burned through some electronics. Well, at this point, they don't know there's a fire, but Mm -hmm. presumably right. The engine has failed or something's gone wrong with it. So the engine fell to zero and stayed at zero. And the high pressure spool speed decayed more gradually. So it's like winding down with the result that the thrust reverser buckets on the left engine were able to deploy fully. However, by the time they tried to retract them, the speed had decayed to a point and the engine oil pressure had fallen to where the thrust reverser was stuck open. Yeah, it didn't have power. To, right. mm. There was no go juice <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to close it. So that bucket just stayed fully extended. The first officer had applied maximum wheel braking, but since the captain thought that maybe the thud was a tire failure uh-huh. and they had plenty of runway in front of them, he's recorded as saying, don't hammer the brakes, don't hammer the brakes. And the first officer responds by modulating the braking effort. He's like, not jamming on them. He doesn't, there's no need to like stomp on them. Yeah. Especially if there's a tire that's blown, it could cause things to become more damaged, like that could mess up the brakes. Or right. Yeah. Or even like if you, if you're in a car and you, you have a blowout, you uh-huh. don't slam on the brakes. You kind of like let it like decelerate on its own. You don't want to potentially have it go off to one side. Mm. So what had happened here actually, you know, they don't know it at this point, but the left engine had suffered an uncontained failure, which punctured a wing fuel tank access panel. Uncontained. Failure. Uncontained failure. That just means that the engine failed and then a part of it shot out. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. If, that, if that's what you meant by uncontained. Yeah. So it failed and then a part of it exited. It boomed. Exited out of, yeah, out of the engine, punctured the wing fuel tank access panel, and then fuel leaking from the wing ignited and burned mm. as a large plume of fire trailing directly behind the engine. So the thud they heard was probably the engine failure and then a part of the engine coming out and hitting the wing. And then which punctured the fuel tank, spilled fuel. And we talked about this at another incident where there was a slow leak in the fuel tank. And as long as the engine was on and they were taxiing, the fuel was getting pushed away from the engine. But then the second they stopped to shut down Mm, the engine, then the fuel hit the engine directly and ignited. So not quite exactly the same, but similar. Mm -hmm. 
At 45 seconds after the start of the takeoff run, which was 9 seconds after the thud, the aircraft was decelerating through 85 knots of ground speed. The commander started to inform air traffic control that they were abandoning the takeoff. And it was right at this time that the fire bell on the flight deck started ringing right at the start of this transmission. Uh, And he added, as he canceled reverse thrust, it looks as though we've got a fire on number one. Then there was a three-second pause, 19 seconds after the thud, and before the crew had silenced that fire bell, air traffic control transmitted, there's a lot of fire, they're (laughs) on their way now. Oh, so it's like, we looks like we got a fire. They were processing in that three seconds, I guess? Well, the pilots say it looks like we've, you know, we've got a fire, number one. Then the tower tells them. Yeah, there's in, a lo- in, in yeah. three seconds. Yeah. Yeah, like, hey, there's a lot of fire. <laughs> then right at the end of that transmission, the fire bell was inhibited and the ground speed was reduced to below 50 knots. And the commander queried with air traffic control whether he needed to evacuate the passengers. And the controller replied, I would do via the starboard side. Because remember, their left engine's mm. on fire. So air traffic control is telling them, hey, exit your passengers out the right side, away from the fire. This message was passed 25 seconds after the thud and 20 seconds before the aircraft stopped as it decelerated through 36 knots of ground speed. So they're still rolling. You know, they're still going for 36 knots. That's probably around 40 miles an hour, uh-huh. just over 60 kilometers an hour. So they're still rolling at a pretty decent clip. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're figuring out they're on fire and they need to evacuate everyone out of the right side. But they can't do it yet because they're, still, they're mm-hmm. still moving. Some six seconds later, 14 seconds before the aircraft stopped, as the commander initiated a turn into Link Delta. So he's turning off the runway onto the taxiway. Okay. Would it have been better for him to stop where he was? I guess it would have held up a lot of stuff because it's on the runway, but... Right, but what are, you know, what are the advantages versus the taxiway? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to put a pin in that. Okay. We're going to talk about that in a second. So, like I said, six seconds later, 14 seconds before the aircraft stopped, the commander started that turn and he warned the crew of an evacuation from the right side of the aircraft by making a broadcast over the PA system mm-hmm. saying, evacuate on the starboard side, please. As the aircraft's ground speed reduced through 17 knots, 10 seconds before they stopped, the purser, which is like the lead flight attendant, opened the flight deck door and said, say again, trying to confirm the evacuation order. And the commander repeated, evacuate on the starboard side. This is still eight seconds before they come to a halt. Mm-hmm. Immediately when the aircraft stopped, the commander ordered the, fi- the engine fire drill to be carried out on the left engine by the, by the first officer. And as the passenger evacuation was to be carried out on the right-hand side to also shut down the right engine. So mm-hmm. they come to a stop and they're like, hey, we need to do the fire drill on the left engine. And we also need to shut down the right engine because passengers are going to be going out on the right yeah. side. So you see, there's a lot now that needs to be done in order to even get people out the door. Yeah. And the passenger evacuation drill, it's a non, what they call a non-memory drill. So they have to you know, pull out the checklist and run through it. Okay. It was called for by the commander and was read from the quick reference handbook by the first officer. But before they were able to complete the drill, the commander saw fuel and fire spreading forward on the left side of the aircraft. So, you know, they're running the, the checklist and the captain looks out and he sees, oh, the fire's advancing. It's coming up it's the left side fa- of the plane. Yeah. So he opens the co-pilot's sliding window on the right side of the flight deck and ordered the first officer to evacuate the aircraft. Man, we've talked about this before as well. There are ropes and plastic, or I should say fabric escape straps above the sliding windows in the cockpit. So mm-hmm. he told the first officer, go out, the, go out the window, you know, here. Don't even go to the door. Like, yeah, you go out here from the cockpit mm-hmm. and don't, wow. And the first officer did so. He's just like, bye. Yeah, <laughs> goes out the sliding window and then he was followed down to the ground by the commander. But wait, what about the checklist? They, they got as far as they could, but at that point, they knew it was too dangerous. They needed so, to go. So, but, and then they just... But they'd already ordered the evacuation by this point. Okay. And they're not in charge of the evacuation. That's what the, the flight, the, the, crew, the crew is, is for. Right. I guess I'm thinking like, and this is not 
the correct way of thinking. You know, the captain goes down with the ship kind of thing, like the last one off, you know. And, and we've talked about incidents yeah. like that where, you know, the, the pilots don't leave and they go back in and check. I yeah. think that they saw the fire advancing so quickly and, you know, they'd already communicated. The purser had come in. They'd already directly communicated with them to evacuate everyone. Yeah. And I think they just, you know, needed to get out of there. Yeah. So you asked about, a little while ago, you asked about staying on the runway versus exiting onto the taxiway. And I'm just curious, why did you ask that? Is it about like a, like a, like a matter of what's faster? Well, like, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's like in a, in a situation where there's a fire rapidly advancing, time is one element, right? Mm -hmm. Like how quickly can they stop and get everyone out? But then there's also, are there, is, is emergency vehicles and stuff easier to access the, the taxiway versus the runway? Or also, if they stayed on the runway, would that create problems for other planes trying to mm -hmm. land and take off? Could, could there be, you know, what are the other issues? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, in an emergency, they're not going to care about the other planes. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's someone else's problem. They need to deal with their emergency. As far as fire crews, I think they can get to the taxiway and the runway pretty much the same. But what you didn't say right now is the same thing that the pilots didn't consider. And, 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 and that's not damning on them. That's just, in general, this was a, a side effect that was not considered before this, this accident. Uh -huh. Like I was saying, the aircraft was taking off on runway 24 and the wind was almost straight down the, the runway. Wind. When they turned to the right, since the fire was on their left side, the wind pushed the fire straight into the fuselage of the plane. Oh. So that when they turned off, the wind was about seven knots from 250, it carried the fire onto and around the rear fuselage. Mm. If they'd made a left turn, I don't think there were left taxiways, so it would have been impossible. I'd have to double check that. If they'd made a left turn, the fire would have been blown away from the plane. But since they turned right, the wind hit the fire and then just made it engulf the back yeah. of the plane. That was the other thing I was thinking. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I didn't think about I, <laughs> Let me say this. I didn't think about the direction of the wind, but I was also thinking the more they move, the more oxygen is just going to get to the to the mm -hmm. fire. You know, like that when we were like, how long are they going to dry or right. dry? Like they're, they're just pushing oxygen. I didn't think about the wind direction though, but also I don't know who would. Right. It, it, it's something that was very overlooked at the time. No one would have thought about it. Yeah. Unless you like dealt with fires on planes before and you're like, that's your thing. Right. <laughs> In which case that sucks. <laughs> yeah. This is awful. So they turned to the right, which was the worst possible direction to turn. And then the, as they stopped, the hole was penetrated rapidly by smoke and some flames mm. and, and they entered the cabin through the aft right door which was opened shortly before the aircraft came to a halt and then subsequently fire developed within the cabin mm. and despite the prompt attendance of the airport fire service the plane was totally destroyed and like we said in the intro 55 people lost their life and 55 people was just because they couldn't get off the plane in time well that's They're, the question right like yeah what killed these people were they killed by the fire were they killed by smoke was it possible for them to have exited through a door? Like how, yeah. how much time are we talking about here? Like that's going to be, Chris, that's like the next 20 pages of, uh, of, uh, of this script is deal, getting down into yeah. the nitty gritty about this and trying to figure out what went wrong and what can be done to prevent this. So in order to be certified during certification, uh -huh. planes must be evacuated within 90 seconds using only half their exits. Oh, okay. This is like in order to qualify, like this is when your regulations, when building a plane. Right. When building a plane, when testing it before they, they come out, they have to prove you can evacuate that plane in 90 seconds using only half the exits. I want to know how long it took them once they gave the evacuation to, to I guess they didn't finish. No. Well, and also, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. 
but I'm, I'm, I am going to say something here to get a little ahead of myself, right? So these certification tests are done with no smoke and the passengers know there's no risk to their life mm. and they are anticipating they're going to need to evacuate. So when they do these tests, it's like ideal situations. Yeah. It's clear. There's no real danger. Everyone's fine or lining up orderly and making their way to the exit. Yeah. But the reality in when things really go wrong, that's not the way it happens. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like, those are people who are hired to do drills. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like they're, they're not even people doing drills who are just like, uh, it's not like fire drills when you're in school. Right. Right. These are just, hey, we want to hire people to do some safety drill. <laughs> like I, it's really interesting because I watched some footage of these evacuation tests that they do and they mm-hmm. have everyone wear like a vest with their seat number on it. And then they watch, you know, to see like how quickly each seat can get through yeah. the, the exits. So after this accident, they, you know, their safety boards decided to kind of look at these tests and see what they could do to tweak them. So they had um, a psychologist come in to advise them about the way people are going to react and what's going to mm. happen. So they came up with a special test to try to recreate the actual urgency that people would have. Do they tell people they're doing one thing and then like surprise them with a, with, with a fire test? No. What they did was they offered people money based <gasps> on how quickly they could get out of the plane. Oh my <laughs> the God. The faster you got out, the more money you got. So when they did the test like this, people were like crawling over seats and rushing oh and God. shoving to get ahead. That's actually a really, I guess, smart way right. of, of like figuring out what people are actually going to do. Right. Because now they're, they're incentivized to get out quickly and there's yeah. no more orderly line. Yeah. So it's like, oh, that really opened people's eyes. Like, oh, this is how people are actually going to evacuate a plane. <laughs> yeah. When there's an emergency. And that's without the smoke and fire. Event. Right. Wow. It's like a game show. They should have felt that. Sh- <laughs> So, I mean, that's just before that, that's, we haven't even gotten into the, <laughs> the, the investigation here, but I just thought that was a really interesting part of an interesting lesson learned here. So, you know, the, the investigation looked at the evacuation and they said there was no delay in the response of the Ford cabin crew members to the evacuation order. Indeed, it was the rapid operation of the R1 door. So the R1 door is if you're sitting in the plane facing uh-huh. forward, it's at the very front on the right. Typically, you don't come in that door. It's like they'll load the galley through that door. Uh-huh. It's like when you go up, if you go to the bathroom at the front of the plane, you know, you look to the left and that's the door you came in from. Then if you look to the right, there's another door there Yeah, on the other side of the plane. That's the R1 door. So this report says it was the rapid operation of the R1 door with particular acceleration of the door through the aperture, which exposed the design fault associated with the release lanyard, leading to the premature release of the slide box, which caused the door to jam in the aperture. It got jammed. The R1 door, you're right, that they needed to evacuate from got jammed because they tried to open it so quickly that the slide started to deploy and then jammed the door in place. That's a terrible design then. If the emergency door jams, if you try to open it too quickly. Right. It's like, that shouldn't happen. That's, that's the only way you really open emergency things. Right. <laughs> under pressure. <laughs> so remember, there's a fire on the left side. They have to go out the right side and the, door and the R1 jammed. door jams. Oh my God. And that's the, that's the one at the front. That's the one that's furthest from the fire. Correct. That's the best door to leave. That, on. Is, that is the optimal door that they could leave from. And the aircraft manufacturer had no record of any similar occurrence during 20 years of experience of certification testing of the door with different slide designs or in any actual emergency evacuation. because they weren't paying people to get off. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily for, for them, you know, the, the purser, remember the, the, the flight attendant who had gone into the cockpit earlier, quickly decided not to spend any more time on the jammed door. So he then turned his attention it to, got jammed, like, as in unopened, it's jammed, it's jammed. It's stuck. Wow. Right. So he, 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 the, the purser realizes this and immediately decides, okay, we need to give up on this door and open the L1 door. 
which is the side with the fire, but it's at the very front of the plane, kind of away from the yeah, fire. Yeah, furthest so, from the fire. Also, two doors is better than one. Right. At that point. So they turn to the L1 door. And the other door, because there's, there's, there's two at the front and then two in the back. Right. The L1 and R1 are at the very front, mm-hmm. and L2 and R2 are at the very back. Okay. We'll talk about those in just a bit. And then, of course, there's overwing exits as well. So emergency three, exit three. So there'd be a total of six. Yeah, sorry, three, three on each side. side yeah. right. And then the cockpits slide away secret door. Right, that only the, only the pilots can use. So, like I said, the purser turns his attention from R1, knows it's not going to open, turns to L1, and opens up L1. And since he saw R1 jammed, he was very careful wow. <laughs> in opening L1 Good. to make sure that it didn't jam as well. And he also you know, pulled the manual inflation handles for the slides, even though they were already deploying automatically. He's wanted to be sure that they deployed. It's like, we need to get people out this door. Yeah. Okay. So the overwing exits, the left overwing exit was blocked by smoke and flames. That's where the engine is. That's where the fuel tank is in the wing. This is going to be the worst point of fire. In the middle. Right. In the middle of the plane. This is not an exit you can use in this particular situation. So looking at the right overwing exit, the passenger who was seated at the right overwing exit had difficulty in understanding how to operate the hatch. At that time, there was no requirement that exit row passengers receive a briefing on how and when to open the hatch. Wow. So this, this, this incident is why you have to be like, verb, like verbally to say, yes, I am capable and understand. Yes. Th- this is the reason. Why weren't they able to open it? Were they just panicked? Or I think they-, they, they were panicked and they'd probably never thought about it. They hadn't looked at the... The, the the manual, right. And I think another thing that people don't think about with these emergency exits, I think about this just because I'm, I'm a weirdo. Well, yeah, we also uh, podcast about it. Right. <laughs> but the thing I think a lot of people don't think about is how heavy those hatches are. Have you ever thought about that? If you had to open that emergency exit door, how I heavy I have thought about the weight of it, but they do emphasize like, are you like, I don't know, capable, physically, physically, physically capable. capable. Yeah. And so I've thought about like, well, there must be like some physicality to it. Mm-hmm. There, and lots of times the hatches do have their weight written on them. And this particular hatch was 22 kilograms, which is 48 pounds. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. So once, and we're, again, we're talking about the right overwing exit. Once that hatch was released, it fell inward onto the passenger seated next to it, trapping her. So they open it. The door falls in. It falls on a passenger. Wait, I, I thought they, I thought they opened out. There, there's different versions. That's and back then, in this one, it opened in, and and then some of them. We, we talked about an incident where they were the doors got shifted from inward to outward whenever one of the the locks got messed up, right? And that was a cargo door. Cargo door. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, these uh, so they, they normally show you on in the instructions whether the door you're seated and if you're in an emergency exit comes in or goes out. And this one, it comes in. And normally the instructions show you to you know pull the hatch in and put it on the empty seats there in the exit row. In this case, the hatch came in and trapped a passenger. So then two passengers had to lift the hatch and put it in the seat in the next row back. Wait, you say lift, is is the door on hinges? No. Or does it just open and then then it just like... Then you've got to deal with this thing. Okay. I thought it was on hinges, like, and it opened and then... I've seen some like that. Okay. I think the vast majority of them are not like that. So it just pops open and then... You just got, what do I do with this? And right. then people are pushing. Right. People are pushing, trying to get out. This is crazy. And now you got to deal with now you have this a 40, 50, right, a 50 pound hatch. You got to put it somewhere. It falls on a woman. It's it huge. And like some woman, yeah. And you're like, oh, like, and then she squished some woman under a, that's, and, and then she can't move, which creates another bottleneck for more people trying to get out. Cause everyone's pushing. Right. And, and, and but when you pull the door, the, the balloon slides auto deploy, right? You said earlier. Uh, those are for the other ones. Overwing exits don't necessarily have a slide. 
Wait, they don't necessarily have a slide? Because right, or- remember, if you think about it, when you open those emergency overwing exits, the wing is right there. Where would the slide go? So how are they getting out? There's a few different ways. I don't know about this plane specifically, but normally you get out under the wing and you either like... Climb onto the wing? Right, yeah, there's a path. You can go out onto the wing and you go out onto the wing and go down to the ground. Or sometimes there's a little slide that will deploy there and then go down to the ground. Okay. This is... This is... This is awful. Yeah. So by the time they finally do this, they lift the hatch, they put on the next seat back. The exit is now available t- for use. Mm-hmm. This is 45 seconds after the plane has stopped. So the fire's already been going. The plane's been stopped for 45 seconds. And they gave the order to evacuate before the plane had stopped. Right. Like, what, like 15, right before. 15, 20, 15? How long ago? About, I think it was six seconds before they stopped. Okay. That's actually, though, not that long. But they need to be out in yeah. 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 45 seconds has already been they're, they're used. They're supposed to be, everyone is supposed to be out in 90 right. seconds. But I guess when you think about it, like 45 seconds in, in your day, that's like nothing. Right. But like, when there's a fire. No, no. I get, yeah. I'm just thinking about it. It's like, well, it's not like they were stuck there for five minutes. You know, right. it's like 45 seconds to open is like opening the door. It's like every second counts. Right. And that just means the exit's now available. No mm-hmm. one's gotten out yet. <laughs> yeah. So once the hatch had been removed, there were still difficulties for passengers getting to and using the exit. The exit row seats only allowed 27 centimeters or 10.5 inches to pass through, and the armrest between those seats remained down. Oh. And the exit was directly over a seat. <laughs> so it wasn't even like... What? Li- it, yeah, it wasn't lined up with the aisle. You had to like clamber Climb onto, onto a seat. seat to then get... No to wonder th- that woman was trapped. Right. This was just poorly laid out. So even though the door is now open, or the, I should say the exit is now open and available, it's not easy to get to because yeah. passengers have to like maneuver awkwardly to escape. And like you said earlier, passengers in the rear of the aircraft are panicking because there's smoke and flames and the cabin is now getting really hot all at the same time. So passengers are crawling over seat backs trying to get to this right overwing exit as well as those two exits at the front. What about the back exit? The back right one? We'll get to that. Or starboard. <laughs> yeah, we're still we're, yeah, we're yeah. working our way back. And some survivors told investigators that the aisle had become blocked with bodies. So on top of that, like people are collapsing. Bodies? Right. Like, not like... Bodies of like, yeah, I assume people were st- like, when anytime you try and get off a plane, everyone stands up in the aisle. Mm-hmm. So I assume that was happening. But you're talking about people were passing out from the smoke inhalation. Pa- you're either passing out or dying at this point. That They're dying that quickly. From, right. from, from, from smoke inhalation. You can die that quickly? Yes. Smoke? Wow. Because remember, it's not, it's not necessarily just preventing you from breathing. It could be toxic fumes. Mm, yeah. Okay. Like, if you think about all the stuff that's in a plane that's burning. Yeah. Like plastics and all those like awful chemicals that are being released that are getting into into your lungs. So all of this caused jamming at all of the exits and the seat over which the overwing exit was located failed in such a way that the seat back collapsed forward, causing a further obstruction. Wait, what? I think because people were trying to crawl over Uh and get to the exit. The instead, you know, normally you can recline the seat back. It it It, snapped. It snapped forward. Right. Yeah. Which was where the the hole for the door is. Right. So we now just talked about it. So, so, so now, oh my God. It's becoming even more obstructed. That, uh, and it snapped. Oh my God. What did, did anyone even try and open the other door? Or was there too much fire and stuff? I don't On know. the left side? No, it was okay. way too much fire. Okay. It, was, it would have been impossible. And a man who had been seated in 16 C was found dead lying across that right overwing exit. And investigators are unsure whether the seat back collapse had trapped him, but they think it was a possibility. Like he was trying to crawl through when the, when it collapsed on collapsed him. onto him, right. and then he, he just got trapped. And then people were pushing, pi- trying pi- to get and out. And then people piled on top of him, right? Like, because you always think about like how do people die in crowds? 
Mm-hmm. You know, like, we're like, well, the people are just standing. It's like, but people panic and then they trample. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Because then it's like, even one person would be a lot of weight to try to move. Now, two people or three or four, it's like, it gets unbelievably heaviest with each person. Yeah. There was a 14 year old boy who was found lying across the top of the man who was in 16C. <gasps> he was found by firefighters five and a half minutes after the aircraft had stopped. And he was alive, suffering only superficial burns to his hands. And he was the last of 27 survivors to escape through that overwing exit. And he was the last evacuee to survive the accident. He got, how did he get trapped? He was just found lying across. He was probably, he may have passed out. Okay. And he was found, you know, five and a half minutes later and only had superficial burns to his hands. Most of the 38 bodies were found clustered around this overwing exit because this exit was the first available to the 76 passengers seated behind it or even with it and the nearest exit for 100 passengers. And you're talk, you asked about those rear doors. Yeah. Which I assume didn't go well because people are climbing. Right. I, actually, I'll, 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 get, I'll get to that here in just okay. a bit. So it's notable, although the number four stewardess initially had to keep passengers out of the galley while the purser was dealing with the doors. We're talking back again about L1 and R1 at the very front. Yeah. Once he had opened the L1 door, there was a log jam of passengers formed in the narrow aisle between the galley bulkheads which she had to free by pulling passengers clear. If you think about it, like when you get on a plane, you walk in the door, you turn to your right to go to the seats. Mm -hmm. It's kind of narrow there. Yeah. Before you get into the aisle where the seats are. Well, back then it was even more narrow. They had to change the size of that galley because of this accident. Back then, that bulkhead opening was only 22.5 inches wide. What? It's really narrow, right? Wait, 22.5 inches? That's and that why I, I they, didn't even think there's some people who could fit through that. Right. I mean that not in a, not in a mean way. Not that people. Like, yeah. Right. It's just it's way too small. It's like a yeah. I, so you think about your waist, right? When people, that's like well, in, that, that's a circumference. Yeah. Though. No. I know. Yeah. I'm just thinking low, like I feel like a lot of you know the narrowest part of a lot of, of bodies is like ten to oh probably more to, than that. I mean ten, ten. I would say ten on the low side to like I don't know. I bet some people are. Go up to 30s and 40s. Yeah, I'm, I like, don't, I'm trying to guess for myself. I'm probably 18 inches wide. I don't know, but, you yeah, know. Like, and I, I don't know. And but, I'm a pretty thin person. Yeah. So, like, yeah, this bulkhead opening was 22.5 inches wide. So when people were going to evacuate, they were getting jammed in there. And one of the flight attendants was having to, like, unclog it. Like, pull people free. Oh, my God. To, like, get the log jam cleared out. Because of this accident, now that opening, the size of it got increased to 30 inches. And in testing the show, oh, this greatly in- increases survivability. Yeah. Right. Because now don't people don't bottleneck get stuck the emergency there. exit. Right. <laughs> One other side note I didn't know where else to put this in the script. The other thing that people learned from this accident that got introduced was they added strip lighting to the floors to guide people to the exits. And they go mm. over that now in a yeah, yeah. pre flight. They're like, in the event of emergency, you Look know, at the ground. floor lighting will show you where, you know, where to go and where the exit is. Didn't exist back then. So from survivor statements, this jam, or remember the 22.5 inch opening, this occurred as passengers moved forward down the aisle while being pushed from behind and they were jostling for position at the bulkheads with other passengers who had moved forwards over the seats. So there's like this log jam of people crawling over the seats, coming down the aisle, trying to get through here. And the number four flight attendant is having to stop them to keep them there so that the purser can open the door. Yeah. To give him enough room to open the door. And then once the door is open, she's having to like yank people through to clear that congestion to get people out the door. I'm just trying to think about that door coming off its hinges or like not having hinges. And I'm just like, <laughs> I guess the benefit of that is 
you can put it wherever you need to put it. But right. And it's not something that'll fail. Yeah. Like yeah. imagine if we have those hinges, like a, a pneumatic, and we're again, we're, we're switching here. We're talking about the overwing exit now. If you have something like, think about like a, your, a hood on a car with that pneumatic. Uh-huh. You know how lots of times over time, like that doesn't work anymore. Like your hood will fall down. It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. you got to get like a, a rod to hold your hood up. Like imagine if that happened on an emergency exit. Yeah. That'd be no good. Anyway, going back to the front doors here, L1 and R1. It's apparent that from the statements of the cabin crew that survivors tended to flow in groups to either one door or the other, probably because the aisle between the galley bulkheads effectively throttled the flow, restricting the exit rate to lessen the potential capacity of the two forward doors. So they weren't able to get enough people forward to evacuate. They could have been evacuating more. Like to the, to, to the front rear. To the front, yeah. Or L, not, L, sorry, front R. If, one, whatever, whatever. L1 and R1. Yeah, <laughs> correct. L, yeah, whatever that one is. The Ford cabin crew members reacted commendably and with courage, remaining on board until they were on the point of being overcome by smoke themselves and were being urged by firemen to get out. A number of survivors clearly owe their lives to the direct actions of the purser and the number four stewardess. Cool. Number four flight attendant, she actually kept going back in looking for people. And she found, I, I want to say she found one like young girl who was disoriented in her seat and like picked her up and carried her out and like wow. you know, took her to the hero. exit. Yeah, hero. absolute hero going back in like at, at her own, at yeah. risk of her own life, you know, just crawling sure. on the floor, looking for anyone who was alive and, you know, dragging them up to the front and yeah, getting them out of the plane. I think about, again, going back to fire drills when you're a kid and it's like, you're supposed to stop, drop and roll. If you're, if on, you're fire. on fire. <laughs> but then also you get on the ground and crawl. And I remember that being instilled into me as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like one time, this is a, a tangent. One time when we were a kid, I think my, my mom wanted to start a fire in the winter or something, like not on purpose, like in the fireplace. Okay. Uh, a, 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 a good fire. <laughs> and uh, she didn't uh, open the chimney hatch. Mm -hmm. And then, so there's just smoke everywhere in our house. And I remember screaming, everyone stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then uh, after I stopped and dropped and rolled, then I remember like, like, you gotta crawl. like army crawling yeah. through the house because that's what I'd been trained to do. And the reason is like, those toxic gases Goed go up. up, so if you stay low, you'll be okay. So all of this we've talked about so far has been the front exits and the overwing exits. And I know earlier you asked about the rear exits, are mm -hmm. L2 and R2. So back there, it's the number two and number three flight attendants who sit at the back of the plane. And the report says they were placed in an extraordinarily difficult position. The extent of the external fire and its effects would have been known to them at an early stage, as with the discomfort and the alarm of the passengers in the rear of the aircraft, especially on the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. Not much is known of their actions. The first and only activity evident at the rear of the aircraft was the opening of the R2 door just before the aircraft stopped. And I mentioned this very briefly in reading a bunch of text earlier. So the plane was still rolling right, right before it stopped. That rear right door did open. Uh -huh. This occurred very shortly after the commander's evacuation instruction and could have been either a very rapid response to that command or as a direct response to deteriorating conditions in the rear of the cabin. Yeah, they just started doing it. Right, they just needed to start doing something to prep getting people out because this is the part of the plane where it would have been the worst. Mm. During the latter stages of the abandoned takeoff and just as the aircraft turned towards taxiway link Delta, the right rear R2 door was seen by external witnesses to be open with the slide deployed and inflated. A flight attendant was initially visible in the doorway, but the door and slide were obscured by thick black smoke as the aircraft stopped. No one escaped through this door. Wow. Two passengers remember seeing one of the two flight attendants from the rear of the aircraft struggling to direct passengers in the rear aisle and neither rear flight attendant survived. So no one in the back of the plane made it out. Oh, they, no. they opened that R2 door even before they were stopped, and no one could even get it to that door. That's how bad the smoke in the back of the plane was. Wow. If you look at a map of 
where passengers were seated and what door they escaped through and where the passengers perished. I would, yeah, that's what we should post on social media. I, I will post that. It's, it's a really interesting breakdown to look at. And I mean, there are a couple of people in the rear of the plane who do manage to get out, but it's really the bulk of the people who, who died in this accident were seated in the back of the plane because they were furthest from the usable exits. And there was just, that's where the smoke and fire was the worst. It's so tragic that other door didn't open. Mm-hmm. But even so, even then, I don't know if they would have made it all the way through. There's still a bottleneck of people not able to. Right. They can't get people through fast enough to, to use those doors. From the total of 22 rows of seats in the cabin, there were only five survivors from seats aft of row 16. So from row 16 to 22, only five people survived. From where 29 passengers and two flight attendants perished. The rearmost and sole survivor in row 20 remembered a flight attendant in the aisle next to him apparently trapped in a melee of passengers. And this was probably the number two flight attendant whose evacuation task in other circumstances would have been to open the L2 door, but they couldn't open that door in this instance. So as all of this is going on, the purser, you know, once he does open the L1 door and people begin going out to it, he actually turns his attention back to the R1 door, thinking, okay, now we have an exit for people to go out. I'm going to try and get this other one. Yeah, I need to try to get the other door open. And he does actually manage to open it. Oh, he like has to really mess with it because like I said, the, the slide started deploying. So he's got to like get in there and try to like unstick the slide from the you door. You say the slide as in like the... The evacuation slide. It got stuck in the... Do- it started deploying before the door was open. And that's how it and, got yeah, stuck. Yeah, it was getting jammed. So, so he, it was like up against the, the, the plastic inflatable correct. stuff? So he was having to like get his hand or I don't know what, what he actually used, but he was having to like move the slide as it was trying to deploy out from the door which was jamming it and then push the door open. And he did actually manage to get the R1 door. You say push the door open, as, but it's really pull it yeah, in. Yeah, sorry. I, I said, but yeah, you're, you're right. Right? He did manage to open the door so that people could evacuate from there as well. Sounds like there needs to be some design work on the slide. <laughs> yeah, that needs to be, that, and that was revisited. So in total, 17 surviving passengers escaped through the yellow one door, 34 escaped through the R1 door, and 27 through the overwing exit, including one infant and one child in arms. Members of the fire service who were on duty at the time, you know, said that they heard a bang and saw an aircraft decelerating on runway 24 and black smoke and flames were trailing from the left side of the aircraft. And the firemen had already initiated their response when the crash alarm siren sounded. So even before the alarm went off, letting them know about it, they'd already seen it and were already getting ready and heading out there. Two rapid intervention vehicles attended first, one arriving at the aircraft coincident with and the other just after the L1 door had opened and its slide had deployed as passengers were about to start evacuating. So they got out there yeah. very quickly. The fire service vehicles were positioned in order to attempt to keep the escape routes clear of fire and to attack the source of the fire. When the second fire engine arrived, the first concentrated on the burning jet fuel and the left engine. The second sprayed foam over the fuselage and the open door. That flight attendant I talked about, number four flight attendant, she said that like when that door opened and when she started leading passengers to it, that there was just like foam and water hitting them because the firefighters wanted to keep the fire from going in that door and to try to keep people cool as they were coming Uh out from that door. And so at this time, you know, this is when that number four flight attendant, her name's Joanna Toff, is now directing these people out the L1 door, and that's when the purser moves back to R1 to try to work on it and get it open. When the left side door, when L1 was opened, exiting passengers were all, like I said, were jammed between those two galley bulkheads, and Joanna Toff was having to pull the passengers out one at a time, clearing the jam, getting people out L1, while... The purser was working on R1. He, he successfully opened the door about one minute after the plane had stopped. And so this, this narrow passageway, that, that's the access point for 
both L1 and R1. Right. Mm. To even get to the doors, people have to go through that. So it's like there's point. two doors to exit out of, but only room for one person to get through at a time. Right. Which is just... Not great. Not great, yeah. But you think, you know, in this situation, they should have been exiting only out of the right side. They shouldn't have been using the left door. So if they're only using one door, it's probably okay. But you're right. There's no reason not to increase yeah. the size to let more people out. 16 passengers and Toph escaped through the left front door, and one of whom was dragged out by Toph while unconscious, and the purser and 34 passengers made their escape out of the right front door. About seven minutes after the aircraft stopped, it became clear no more passengers were likely to evacuate unaided, and firemen equipped with breathing apparatus entered through that R1 door. However, there was an explosion that occurred, oh, which no. blew one of the firemen oh, no. out of the door and onto the tarmac, and then after this, the officer in charge you know, became concerned about the limited amount of water remaining on the firefighting vehicles, ordered that no further attempts to enter the cabin should be made until reliable water supply was established. In that explosion, did anyone die or get injured? That's a good question. There is, the report doesn't talk about that. I don't know. The only thing the report says is that that fireman was blown, know, blown out okay. the door onto the tarmac, but there is no follow-up as to whether or not he was injured. I would assume he was, he didn't die because I, they would list it. Right. And he's not listed as an injury yeah. in the write-up. So I'm going to say he was probably okay. They have a bunch of protective gear on so, yeah. for that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, they, um, they wait for a bit, regroup, and then, you know, re-enter with breathing apparatus, you know, and then... This is about 33 minutes after the aircraft had stopped. They find a male passenger who was alive but unconscious, lying in the aisle near the front of the aircraft. And he was the last person to be removed alive, but he ended up dying six days later in the hospital due to injuries in his lungs and the resulting pneumonia. Oh, he, yeah. Mm, inhaled a lot of toxic smoke. Right. Toxic smoke and fire caused the deaths of 53 passengers and two cabin crew, 48 of them from smoke inhalation. 78 passengers and four crew escaped with 15 people sustaining serious injuries. We've already been talking for, what, like 45 minutes. And we haven't even really scratched the surface of the investigation. We've just been talking about the evacuation, the evacuation which happened in just a couple of minutes, right? Like the entire thing was just seconds to minutes wow. in occurring. Kick off spring with new gear built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered from the sun to the slopes with premium polarized shades, customizable snow goggles, and much more. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's just as good as any expensive pair I've ever worn. Plus, Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, so if you lose or break your pair even on day one, they'll send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Shady Rays also provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order and have donated over 20 million meals to date. So you can look good in your gear and feel good by making an impact. I keep Shady Rays in my bag, so I've got them ready anytime uh, I'm out and about on the go. Uh, find if it gets a little too bright, a little too sunny, bam, just slap them on. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Their team always has your back. So just for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out their best deal of the new year. Go to ShadyRays.com. Use code BLACKBOXDOWN for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. Hey, in case you didn't know, April, it's Earth Month, and Green Chef is offering a collection of brand new limited-time-only recipes made with sustainable, Earth-friendly ingredients throughout the end of April. The Earth Month recipes feature premium proteins, seasonal organic produce, and sustainably sourced seafood. They're also partnering with One Tree Planted to plant trees in northern Thailand to combat food insecurity in vulnerable communities. One tree will be planted for every box it's sold. 
I love Green Chef. Uh, I think it's great. I'm always excited whenever I get uh, my meals during the week. Uh, I know it's you know stuff that I really like, stuff that I'm going to like. And uh, it's fun to put together, super quick, and you feel good at the, when you're done with it and you get to eat it. In case you didn't know, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh. With a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there really is something for everyone. Plus, as an added bonus, Green Chef is the only meal kit that offsets 100% of their carbon footprint, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. With Green Chef, you're reducing your food waste by up to 23% versus grocery shopping, so you can eat well while celebrating Mother Earth this April. Right now, go to greenchef.com slash blackboxdown60. Use code blackboxdown60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's G-R-E-E-N-C-H-E-F dot com slash blackboxdown60 with code blackboxdown60 for 60% off and free shipping. The scary truth is that huge tech companies enrich themselves by making money off your personal data. They grab your web history, email metadata, and video searches to create a detailed profile on you, and then they sell that off to the highest bidder. To protect your identity and data from these tech giants, I recommend using ExpressVPN every time you go online. Just think about the websites you visit, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google, Everything you do and say online is tracked when you browse on an unprotected network. Uh, luckily, ExpressVPN makes you anonymous online by camouflaging your IP address and replacing it with a different secure IP of your choice. It also encrypts all your data, so it's protected from hackers and anyone else that's trying to spy on you. Uh, it's super easy to use. It's like one button. It covers every device I have, my laptop, my desktop, uh, my phone, my tablet. doesn't matter. I'm always protected and uh, just, you know, peace of mind knowing that um, there's, there's no snooping, no eavesdropping going on. You can just change your IP address at will. So if you want your internet data to belong to you and not big tech companies that are going to profit off your personal data, then ExpressVPN is the answer. Protect your data with the number one rated VPN provider today. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. Expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. So many of the factors which affected this accident should have been biased towards a favorable outcome. The cabin was initially intact. The aircraft remained mobile and controllable. No one had been injured during the abandoned takeoff. It was on the ground. Right. That's what we keep saying. It hadn't even gotten in the air. The volume of fuel involved, although capable of producing an extremely serious fire, was relatively small compared with the volume typically carried at takeoff. The accident occurred on a well-equipped major airport. And fire service was in attendance within 30 seconds of the aircraft stopping. But still, 55 people died. Mm. And the investigation identified the cause of all of this as engine failure. And the sequence of events which followed relating to the development of the fire and the evacuation were extremely complex, involving numerous interlocking factors, many of which critically affected survival. So, and like, I mean, all of this happened. We still haven't gotten to it. Why did the engine do that? Why did it have an uncontained failure? Why did a piece come out? And start a fire. Like, how yeah. did you even get to this point? And although much evidence was destroyed in the fire and other evidence, especially that from survivors and rescue personnel, required careful interpretation, particularly concerning their assessment of time scale, it has been possible to construct a reasonably consistent picture of the fire in all its aspects. Statements from the survivors were highly descriptive and provided a rare insight into the evacuation problems encountered. And for the most part, conclusions derived from an analysis of the wreckage accorded well with those arrived at via witness testimony and from other sources. We always say eyewitnesses are unreliable, so they have to, you know, compare yeah. everyone's statements and then compare all of those statements to the facts that they can see, you know, from the wreckage. And they say they're able to, to piece together pretty well yeah. what happened. So dealing with the engine, there was an explosive failure of the combustion chamber outer case and the damage to the adjoining tank access panel were clearly related events. Marks on the access panel fragments exactly match the shape of the domed head of the separated number nine combustor can and the fan case fragment, 
and a smear of panel material was identified on the dome, indicating beyond all doubt it was this which struck and shattered the panel. It is clearly evident the dome was ejected through the disrupted engine casing as a result of extremely rapid escape of high-pressure combustion air through the ruptured portion of the engine. This released a fuel from the damaged wing tank directly into combustion gases from the ruptured combustion chamber, and its inevitable ignition changed the nature of the event from purely engine-related incident into a catastrophic event. Okay, that was a huge mouthful. So in the engine, there's these parts called combustor cans. And the combustor cans are parts where fuel and air are mixed together and ignited to create the thrust. And it turns out one of them, the number nine combustor can, had, you could say, exploded. It had shattered. Yeah. And a part of it shot out from the engine and then hit the underside of the wing next to the engine. Yeah. But it turns out it didn't just hit like a random part of the underside of the wing. Uh-huh. It hit an access panel on the underside of the wing. Like in case someone needs to open it up and take a look in, into the wing. Uh-huh. It's not a very big panel. It's just like pure dumb luck. It hit this small weak spot on the bottom part of the wing. That was at the access panel. More which, accessible and easier to break through. Br- exactly. And ruptured it. And, stuff. and there was fuel in there and ignited that fuel. Well, the fuel started dripping out, which then hit the hot gases escaping out of the engine and ignited and started the fire. Just really bad luck. Really bad luck. And why it just combusted, be, exploded because... Well, that's now the question. Okay. Why did yeah. it, why did that it explode? Is the <laughs> that, that shouldn't happen. So this engine has nine of these combustor cans mm-hmm. inside of it. And this specific engine was delivered new to British Air Tours in April of 1980, fitted to a different aircraft. And then in the winter of 1983 to 1984, the engine was removed and stripped. And at that time, there was a light maintenance inspection performed and the engine was reassembled with repaired combustor cans from another engine. Oh. This engine had been prematurely removed in September of 1983 due to a pilot report of high exhaust gas temperature and visible compressor damage. This engine was stripped and it was found that a failure of the 13th stage compressor outer shroud had caused damage to the 13th stage compressor blades. Not, not terribly important for us. It's just there was a problem with another engine. They took parts from it, and one of those was the combustor cap, which ended up here. And there, the, there is a huge section of this report that I'm going to summarize for you because uh-huh. it's all very technical. It deals a lot with metallurgy. And, and I know we actually have some listeners who are metallurgists. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Uh, this is all way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> but the bulk of it is that I can summarize it by saying this. So this number nine combustor can had a circumferential crack, circumferential crack, that's a mouthful, of 160 millimeters. Around the circumference of the, so like. Exactly, around the outside portion. That was 160 millimeters in length. And there was the, the procedure at the time to fix that when there were cracks like that was to do a welding repair. And that was done during the light maintenance inspection. They, they, they found that crack and, right. and, and they welded it. it. Right, they, they presumably right fixed it by what they what they did at the time, which was to well reweld it to fix the cracks, and this was a common fix for this kind of problem. That being said, this particular crack, the 160 millimeters, was longer than they typically fix. This was a particularly long mm. crack. And what percentage of the canister was that crack? So this crack had multiple origins uh, and multiple positions around the circumference of the number nine can. And this can had exhibited two separate cracks centered on the 11 o'clock and two o'clock positions. So imagine a clock going from 11 to two. That's quite a bit. Yeah. Three hours of a clock. Well, then there's 12 hours on the clock. So about 25% of the can. And those were centered. 
Right. Which means it, was, it, it went out from there. And these had been repaired, but cracks at similar radial positions regrew in service and were joined by a third major crack centered on the six o'clock position. So it had cracks at the 11 and two at the top, and then a third crack started down at the six o'clock position. And, and didn't you say that this engine was taken out of, or parts of it were removed into this one because the previous engine was like burning too hot or had too much exhaust or something? The exhaust gas temperature was high. Yeah, Exa but that was a separate issue okay. that they were dealing with having to do with the fan blade. Yeah, this, there were problems in general, we can, we can say here. So there's cracks all over this combustor can that have gotten welded and, and fixed. But this is why, remember I said earlier that the number one engine was having slow acceleration. Because this combustor can was not working quite right. It was already starting to fail, but there's no way to tell that without really getting in there and disassembling and it. How many in an engine? Nine. Nine. So one ninth of the engine was not was really not working. Combusting properly, right. It's not a great analogy, but it would be like the cylinders in your car. Like if one cylinder isn't quite working as well as the other ones. Yeah. Not, not the best analogy, but it'll have to do. Works for me. I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> So the cause of the accident was this uncontained failure of the left engine initiated by a failure of the number nine combustor can, which had already been the subject of a repair. A section of the combustor can, which was ejected forcibly from the engine, struck and fractured an underwing fuel tank access panel. The fire which resulted developed catastrophically primarily because of the adverse orientation of the parked aircraft relative to the wind, even though the wind was light. We talked about this. It turned the worst way possible. Major contributory factors were the vulnerability of the wing tank access panels to impact. Like we said, it hit a weak spot out of any place it could have yeah. impacted. It hit the access panel. A lack of any effective provision for fighting major fires inside the aircraft cabin. The vulnerability of the aircraft hull to external fire. And the extremely toxic nature of the emissions from the burning interior materials. Sorry, I just thought... It's like the, the, they're talking about the Death Star, and it's like, it's not much bigger than a womp rat. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean... The access panels... <laughs> That's, that's, that's probably <laughs> not a bad analogy. It's like, yeah, it's so, I'm, I'm sure that's what someone thought. It's, yeah. It's so small, you know, what, what harm could it cause? What, you know, what's, what yeah. possibly could happen? Well, there might have been some farmer yep. on, a, on a desert planet who'd been bullseyeing womp rats his whole life. Some nerf herder? Yeah. That's all Star Wars. <laughs> the major cause of the fatalities was a rapid incapacitation due to the inhalation of dense, toxic, and irritant smoke atmosphere within the cabin aggravated by evacuation delays caused by a door malfunction and restricted access to the exit. So mm -hmm. this is talking about what you were asking about earlier. Like how do people die so quickly? It's like, it's this dense toxic smoke. It's not necessarily that they're not getting oxygen, well, which they're not. It's more that they're getting this toxic gas, gas. Poison into, gas, right, into their systems. Yeah. You don't, you think about, it's, it's weird because if, if you haven't been in a fire, which I haven't, not really, I don't count the, the, the fireplace stop, incident, yeah, the fireplace incident. You think like, well, you can breathe and like, you breathe the smoke and it hurts and it's like gross, but it doesn't ki kill you, right? But this isn't that, none of us have probably ever been in this situation, right? right? right. I mean, this is like. It's a, it's a confined space and all you can breathe the smoke. There's no escaping. You could try to get low to the ground and maybe you could, you know, get some air, but there's, it's still poison yeah, that's yeah. entering your system. You and if you breathe it in, you go down. Right. It'll incapacitate you. So, you know, I'm going over all of the conclusions and. There are many, many conclusions in this uh, report, but there's, there's, there's an important one here I want to highlight. It says, the decision to turn the aircraft to the right into Link Delta, given the sequence and timing of information available to the commander, in particular, the initial lack of a fire warning was understandable. So it's like, 
they're not blaming the pilots for exiting and making that right turn because they weren't, they didn't have all of the information. They didn't know what was going on necessarily. Yeah. So it's like, this was an understandable thing to do. Yeah. They, like they, they don't have culpability in this. But that being said, the next conclusion is turning the aircraft to the right had a critical effect on the fire, placing it upwind of the fuselage. So even though it was understandable, it still that, really led yeah. to a lot of these problems. The report also does uh, give some praise to that purser, saying the purser showed initiative under pressure in opening the left four door and then returning to the right four door and clearing the jam. You know, he didn't become overwhelmed with panic. It was mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, we got this going. Let's get the other one working too. Yeah. So then there are also some points here about the engine, about the combustor mm -hmm. can. It says, the manufacturer had advised operators that direct fusion weld repaired cans have lower fatigue lives than ones repaired using material replacement techniques, but had not quantified this reduction. Mm. British Airways interpreted this as applicable to cans with a much greater time and service than any operated at the time. So they knew that there was potential problems with welding this and it would reduce the lifespan, but they didn't give an exact number saying how much or when things should be replaced. Yeah, or how big the cracks it was, there was no i don't know rules right. to follow right they were just like hey it's not going to work as well but you still do it yeah and in fact that kind of plays into the next conclusion on uh -huh. here whilst direct fusion weld repairs appear to have proved a worthwhile method for many operators some did not employ this technique for circumferential cracks the cracks mm. that go all the way around a large proportion of operators who did had self-imposed circumferential crack length limits in the region of three inches so they knew they could only go up to a certain size. And again, this wasn't this a is, rule from the manufacturer. This is just like, we're going to make these rules because we think it's safer. Right. Right. But, there was, but it shouldn't be up to you. Right. So even then the operators. Yeah. Because if, if capitalism has taught me anything, <laughs> it's that, that's why there are regulations right. and safety things. Because, it, yeah. But I, I do want to, so this is talking about inches. I do want to put this into context. So mm -hmm. they said a large portion of operators who did this they had self-imposed their own limits on these types of cracks to three inches. We said that this number nine combustor can had a 160 millimeter crack on it. That's about 6.3 inches. Oh! So this, is, this was a huge crack compared to what most, most other operators would Most people wouldn't even try to attempt. Right. They'd be like, that's way too big of a crack. We're not going to do that. Mm. And it was fixed, what, like you said, a year before? Well, they had, they had also done some remedying on it the day before. Because remember I said that the, the left engine was accelerating more slowly? So they, they, this, this had been an ongoing issue that they had been working on for some time. So they kept just... Like repatching re it. Repatching it. it. Right. Trying to get... And they'd done it the it day before. So the report doesn't say... Or I, I, like I shouldn't say that. I was not able to see what action they took the day before. All it said was there was remedial action taken the day before. On the canister. On that engine. So on presumably that engine. The, the, presumably the canister because the canister was the source of the slow acceleration. And they know that that canister was the source of the slow acceleration, or is that now after the fact? That's after the fact. They're okay. able to determine that. And in fact, your question, uh, it, it plays into one of the next conclusions here. Remember, the engine was manufactured by Pratt & Whitney. It says, the Pratt & Whitney maintenance manual gave no guidance for troubleshooting an engine with low idle RPM. British Airways regarded the low idle as the prime reason for the slow acceleration of the number one engine, also reported by the crew on the 21st of August. None of the Pratt & Whitney communications referred to low idle as a symptom of a disrupted can. So mm. even in the manufacturers provided troubleshooting, it didn't say a disrupted can could be the cause of this. But now after the fact, they say, oh, well, it was clearly the disrupted can that was causing all of this to happen. But they didn't know the people who were working on it because 
didn't say it. Right. And it wasn't in the information provided by the manufacturer. Mm. So one of, and, and I want to go back a little bit here and touch on something I mentioned earlier. I said, you know, that the thrust reversers had deployed when they were slowing down when they aborted the takeoff and the right thrust reverser closed and retracted, but the left reverser stayed open because the oil pressure had fallen and uh, the left engine wasn't working anymore. The investigators for a while had a theory that maybe since that left engine thrust reverser was open, that it had been redirecting the fire back onto the fuselage. If the fire was shooting out of the engine, maybe it was hitting the thrust reverser. And instead of reversing thrust, it was reversing fire back onto the plane. Oh, my. They did extensive testing on it, and they determined that was not the case. Okay. That's wild. Yeah, that would be awful to think about. A flamethrower. Yeah, exactly. But they said that by that point, no, there was no like fire shooting out of the engine. That did not happen. I just thought that was an interesting thing because we, yeah. t- we talk about what they find. We don't talk about like all the different avenues they go down yeah. and like all the different possibilities that they have to go through. I'm thinking about them at the office. So they have their whiteboard. All right, Tom, take off your flamethrower <laughs> theory. Yeah, get that out of here. I told you that was junk. <laughs> so we talked about this ejected dome from the number nine combustor can and how it hit the fuel tank access panel. Uh, and it created a hole which had an area of 42 square inches. So that'd be like seven inches by six inches, roughly. And that's the size of the, the canister, right? Um, or, or the whole, the, the top of it? Well, or probably. It probably roughly? got a little bigger. It probably punched through. The hole probably became a little bigger. And it, remember, I said it hit the wing tank axis panel. And that panel had an impact strength approximately one quarter that of the lower wing skin. Had mm. the dome struck the adjacent skin, penetration of the tank probably would not have occurred. God, it's that, it's that one bump rat sized. (laughs) Neither the axis panel nor the lower wing skin were designed to any impact resistance criteria, nor were they required to be. But if it had just moved a little to the left, any direction. Yeah, but you don't really get to pick and choose where things explode. (laughs) Right. But it's like, it's, it's so, it it was such a precise location. It's a precise malfunction. Yeah. The initial, uh, then this one kind of, kind of also uh, is an important one. The initial fire penetration of the fuselage occurred within 20 seconds of the aircraft stopping when the lower skin panels on the left side adjacent to the aft cargo hold were burnt through, followed shortly afterwards by penetration of the fiberglass acoustic insulation blanket. This gave the fire access to a cavity surrounding the cargo hold from which it entered the aft cabin via floor level air conditioning grills located on each side of the aircraft. So the fire kind of got mm-hmm. around into the cargo hold and you talked, you know, we both talked about, you know, when there's toxic gases, you get low to the ground, but the toxic gases were entering via the floor level air conditioning. Oh, so, so th- even, even if you before got, the fire was there, the smoke. Right. It was already coming in, which is why it was largely not survivable back there, which is why so many people mm. died there. Yeah. I guess you think about it normally. You think about, well, there's fire in the cabin and that creates smoke. Mm-hmm. This was, there was fire other places and the smoke was all going into the cabin. Correct. And so even the fire that made it to the cabin, at that point, there was just so much smoke. Exactly. I thought this was another interesting tidbit here. It said approximately 50% of the seats suffered little or no fire damage. And many plastic mm. safety instruction cards, magazines, and other fragile items survived undamaged in the seat back pockets and on seat cushions. In contrast, all ceiling panels and overhead lockers were destroyed and all sideliner panels above cushion level were extensively damaged by fire. I saw the investigator said that you could have taken out like those safety cards from the plane. Mm-hmm. It's like wiped the soot off of them and just reused them still. Like they were so undamaged. Like there were so many things in the plane that were undamaged that could have just and, been wiped off and reused. Yeah, and that's because the fire wasn't as much in the plane. It was more the smoke. Right, it was the smoke that was mm-hmm. traveling up. 
And that actually plays into the next point. A marked stratification of both temperature and smoke was evident throughout the cabin. In areas not actually combusting, there was comparatively little heat or smoke below a level of approximately 18 inches above the cabin floor. So from the floor to 18 inches up was relatively untouched. Wow. So, if you, so that's, that's actually very important to note. If you need to crawl and get out, like get really low. Like 18 inches from the ground is unbelievably low. Like you need to, like you said, like army man crawl uh-huh. uh, to get out of there, to be within that 18 inches. That is, yeah, 18 inches. And it's tough though, because where are you going to crawl in that incident where people are being trampled? Right. And then there's people, or they're falling over on you and... Yeah, there's not really army man... Cr- there's not space. Yeah. There's no army crawling in, 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 in that instance. It's like... Right, you line up... You, you almost have to like... Go down, take a breath, and then come up or something. Yeah. How do you get your nose 18 inches from the ground? Like if I was standing... I don't know. I got a bigger nose than you guys. <laughs> and I had to do that. That seems <laughs> tough. The next two points here are kind of tie into each other. Mm-hmm. The accident has highlighted a general ignorance of the importance of light winds within the aviation community at mm-hmm. large. Yeah. Operational procedures in widespread use at the time of the accident made little or no allowance of practical value for such winds and provided minimal guidance to air crew. So the next one... Procedures should be devised to enable aircrew to position the aircraft most beneficially against the wind in the event of a ground fire. Yeah, which is... Which is, that's what you want to hear. That's, I think, the biggest takeaway here is like if, again, if they had just turned the other direction, it would have gone so differently. They didn't know. And I, and like... Right. Who would have known? The only thing I, I, like I said, is I thought about wind, but it was like more about like stopping movement, mm-hmm. not the wind itself. Right. I bet the movement actually was keeping the fire at bay in some respect. Right. Because it's like... It was the, going against the wind and, and a, against, away, from, away the from the plane. Right. The primary reason for the majority of the fatalities was rapid incapacitation due to the inhalation of toxic smoke atmosphere, the effects of which were made more critical by evacuation delays. Of the 54 fatalities on board, 48 had absorbed levels of carbon monoxide and or hydrogen cyanide in excess of that required to induce incapacitation. So again, just toxic gases. Yes. All of that boils down, I'm just going to read the, uh, what, like the, the final paragraphs here, what they, what they distill as the cause. And we've already kind of gone over it. I just want to mm-hmm. read like officially what they write. The cause of the accident was an uncontained failure of the left engine initiated by a failure of the number nine combustor can, which had been the subject of a repair. A section of the combustor can, which was ejected forcibly from the engine, struck and fractured an underwing fuel tank axis panel. The fire, which resulted developed catastrophically primarily because of the adverse orientation of the parked aircraft relative to the wind, even though the wind was light. Major contributory factors were the vulnerability of the wing tank access panels to impact, a lack of any effective provision for fighting major fires inside the aircraft cabin, the vulnerability of the aircraft hull to external fire, and the extremely toxic nature of the emissions from the burning interior materials. The major cause of fatalities was rapid incapacitation due to the inhalation of dense toxic irritant smoke atmosphere within the cabin, aggravated by evacuation delays, caused by a forward right door malfunction and restricted access to the exits. So I feel like normally at the end, we recap the things Uh that have been learned, but I feel like we've been doing that already throughout this entire episode because there were so many lessons learned from this when it came to dealing with, you know, even things as mundane as briefing the passengers who are seated in the exit Yeah, and these are all things we take for granted too. Right. Because we deal with them as passengers all the time. Everyone deals with these things. Right. How the exit is lined up with the row instead of over the seat. Yeah, that's, this is probably why exit seats are so big. <laughs> right, like, yeah, having more space for them. That even the entrance coming into the plane, the galley, you know, got widened from 22.5 inches to 30 inches. There's like the, the, the exit lighting on the ground. So if you're crawling, army crawling 18 inches from the ground, 
you don't have to look up to see yeah. where the exits are. You know, like, oh, the lights turned red. Is there's an exit here? Yeah. Like all of these little things that really increase survivability. We're, we're nearing the end here. There's something I want to wrap up and talk about. This particular accident, this British Air Force flight, you know, was August 22nd, 1985. Mm-hmm. This was the fourth disaster in 1985. This was a bad year for aviation. In June uh-huh. of 1985, there was an Air India 747 that was bombed. We did an episode about that. Is that the one where the terrorists didn't, were trying to go to Australia or something? No, no, that was uh, Ethiopia. This is the one where it was um, the man in Vancouver would like said he was doing on behalf oh. of all the Sikhs uh, and was flying and it, it, it exploded over the co- off the coast of Ireland. That was the one where he put, that's why you can't put bags and then not get on a plane. Right, exactly. That, that was that one. So that happened in June of 1985. Then later, or several weeks later, there was a Delta flight that crashed at Dallas-Fort Worth due to a microburst. We covered that one too. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, it's like the, in a storm where the wind can like... It increases, then shoots you down, then gives you a tailwind. Then 10 days before this accident was our, I think our second episode where the Japan Airlines 747 decompressed. And that one was huge. That was the big most deaths. Right. The single deadliest plane crash. Tenerife was the deadliest because it involved two planes. And we covered all of those. In 1985 is the second deadliest year in commercial aviation. Wow. But that being said, August 1985, which is when this, inc- this crash, uh-huh. or not crash, this, this accident happened, was the deadliest month ever in commercial aviation. Holy moly. Because that Air India one I mentioned was in June, but all those other accidents, the, the Delta crash, the JAL crash, and this one were all in August of 1985. Can you imagine today if there were three major accidents where people died on airplanes? Like that many people. Yeah. Right. We're talking That's crazy. You know, between all three, probably like a thousand, close to a thousand people. Well, not, not quite. It would be like, let's say like 800 people die in one month on plane From three crashes. different incidents. Right. You'd be like, I'm never getting on a plane. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But all of these were so influential to creating the safety culture I we wonder, take for granted now. Yeah. I wonder if this was like, in a way, the most influential year for safety. It and, may have been. And, and because, because, a lot of these things that we're talking about are not safety things for, for like how the engine works, but a lot of it was about how people right. work and how we deal with uh, passengers mm-hmm. and like getting them on and off the plane. And then the, what we were talking about was the, the uh, suitcase and letting people right. check suitcases. And it's like, yeah. It, it's really um, mind blowing to me that it could have been, that it was this dangerous for what a while. What was the most dangerous year? Uh, the most dangerous year was 1972. It had 55 crashes in total oh, in 19, So more than one a week. And 1972, one of those crashes was the one that the movie Alive was based on, where the people crashed in the mountains in South America and then had to resort to cannibalism to mm. survive. That was 1972. Worst year. 1985 was right behind it. Hopefully we've capped. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We don't ever want to go back. Never again. Yeah, it's not, not a record you want to break. No. But yeah, that, this is definitely like an inflection point where everything started. I think safety became like top of mind for everyone. Like wonder, we need to yeah. fix something. Otherwise, nobody's going to want to do this anymore. Yeah. But yeah, that's it for British Air Tours, uh, Flight 28M. Just really, really dense episode considering the plane never even left the ground. Yeah. There were so many things going on. This is one of our longest episodes ever, if not our longest episode ever. How, how long have we been recording? We've been recording about an hour, 24 minutes so far. Wow. And... I cut a lot out. <laughs> this was a super long script. Big thank you to Marcos who uh, who wrote this script. 
this was so much to parse through and try to distill down into a typical episode. But yeah, that's it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you, everyone. Bye.